This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you for an hour of science now, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. Good to see you. Likewise. It's been a little while. It has been a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Jen's here. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It is a glorious Melbourne autumn day. I'm on a high. It's just so lovely out there. Just, <laughs> just what I'd tell everybody. Oh, there you go. That's, that's great. Uh, <laughs> speaking of high, Chris Gates. Exactly. I, was just, I just wanted to give you a I good segue. You, I told you that in confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I told you not to drink that red cordial, buddy. It uh, goes right through you. Yeah, that's the way it is, you know. Anyway, uh, we've got a couple of guests today, folks, which we will be getting to. But first up, we are going to do a round of news. I think, uh, Dr. Ewan, we'll start with you. Sure. I'm going to talk about the dangers of tweeting. (laughs) So we all know, of course, (laughs) that... Broken fingernails or...? (laughs) Well, no, not that sort of tweeting. Birds, if you're a bird and you tweet. So we all know that we shouldn't drive a car and and use a mobile phone at the same time because things can go horribly wrong. People tell me that, but they don't believe it. (laughs) Don't do it, and no one should do it. And I get really grumpy when I see people do it. It's okay to talk on one, though, right? No. no. The science suggests you're completely distracted, so don't do it. It's a really bad idea. I talked mm. about it on Breakfasters a couple of weeks ago. Talking on the phone is the equivalent of driving with a 0.08 um, blood alcohol. While you're talking? While you're Does talking. Does it depend who you're talking to? If you're talking to someone who's in the car with you, it's fine because they're yeah. aware of what's going on and they can react accordingly. If you're just talking to someone on the phone who can't see, it's really dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Sorry, Ewan. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> anyway, so we know, unfortunately, that there's this issue with uh, artificial light in our cities around the world. Yeah. And previous research also shows that, interestingly, when birds are moving at night time, so many bird species, sparrows, thrushes, and a whole range of other birds actually move at night time when they're migrating. So rather than during the day, they do it at night. And we think that's probably to avoid um, predators, so things like hawks and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. But when they encounter this artificial light, or cities actually, they often tweet a lot more than you would expect, so they're very vocal. Uh, and what we thought is that they're potentially distracted. So we know from other species that animals, unfortunately, have had their behaviour changed quite considerably by artificial light. And so this study that was uh, published just recently in Proceedings of the Royal Society looked at about, I think, 70,000 records of birds hitting buildings over about 40 years in Chicago, also in Ohio as well. And they looked at the types of birds that were flying uh, and what happened. And essentially the birds that travel at night time, the ones that actually vocalise, now not all of them vocalise, but some of them do, they're more likely to hit buildings. And so... And it gets worse than that. So the birds, we think what's going on is they're flying over these buildings and they're getting disoriented by the light and they call to their friends to help navigate and to say, you know, let's go this or let's go that way. But actually what's happening is, of course, it's a chain reaction where one bird gets disoriented, starts tweeting, hits a building, but it's calling as well. Its mates hear that, go towards that, and then Mm. more and more of those birds hit buildings. Wow. So it's quite quite sad, actually. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Because I remember we we had a guest on maybe a couple of years ago now talking about bats, and they had a a dissimilar problem where the way bats know up from down uh, above a body of water is that, of course, it's a perfectly reflecting surface generally. Mm. But if you think of a window on a building, it looks to a bat Mm. like a lake. Yeah. And so all of a sudden 
forward looks like down yep. that's a problem if you're a bat because yep. you get disorientated which is a different problem to what you're talking mm. about yeah buildings are bad yes well and illumination so as mm. we've all had experience you drive around the city and there's all these buildings with you know huge yeah. amounts of lights on in the middle of the night when no one's in these buildings mm. maybe we could turn some of those lights off yeah, yeah. some um, radical idea so they they, t- they make noise they tweet as well yeah. Is there any impact of the amount of noise in a city as to whether or not they Great can Great question, uh, and that study doesn't cover this, but, yeah, one would think also that noise potentially could be uh, a factor as well, uh, mm. explaining it. But, yeah, in this case, it's just that their ability to navigate is being disrupted by the buildings and the light, and then their response, of course, to call is actually contributing to it, you know, this mm. more and more of them, unfortunately, hitting the buildings. So, Because yeah. the, the thing that's fascinating about that, of course, is that birds are quite capable of very complex navigation Absolutely. through trees, <laughs> through, through groups of trees. Yes, yes. So to to not be able to miss a single physical structure, which would be the equivalent of a cliff, yeah, um, means you've confused the crap out of it. But that, exactly, but that is an interesting difference in, in that a tree is reflecting light as opposed to emitting it. Mm. So I'm wondering if that might be part of the problem. The, the distance is actually hard to tell because it's actually producing its own light source. Yeah, I'm always amazed by birds and their ability to move through obstacles. I mean, you see, mm. um, particularly rainbow lorikeets, they yeah. fly through a, a gum tree at warp speed. Yeah, ridiculous think, speed. How do you not hit any of those leaves and not just crash to the ground? It's incredible. Well, maybe you only see the ones <laughs> who've managed That's to right. do that. Strong, <laughs> strong selection for the ones that get it right. That's right. <laughs> if you look down, you see all the others. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we, we joke, but it's a serious problem. I uh, love those lower kids. Uh, Chris KP, what do you got? Uh, I wanted to uh, briefly talk about pyroclastic flows. Oh, Not just yes, to I say the this. words, um, although, let's face it, that's pretty fun. Um, <laughs> but because, so if, you, if you're not familiar with this, if, when there's a, a volcano going off, um, you, you see this volcanic matter sort of flowing downhill, and it's incredibly fast, and it seems to only ever get faster. And if you mm. pause for a moment and think, well, okay, what is this? Well, it's, it's made up of, there's a lot of gas in there as well, but the stuff that you see is, is you know, smoke and dust and bits of rock, which you know, are quite often quite abrasive and sharp. Yeah. So how are they moving? You know, in, in such so fast. A, so fast. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, they can in fact almost flow uphill too. Yeah. If there's a right, yeah. the right orientation, so they seem to flow much closer to, uh, to to a liquid than anything else. Yeah. So they're freaking scary, but also incredibly cool. Um, but a bit confusing. Uh, so some researchers at uh, Massey Uni in Palmerston North. Presumably because they are um, scientists with in, New Zealand, in New Zealand. In New Zealand, that's yeah. right, yes. With a, with a deep and abiding commitment to uh, volcanology, um, were studying this. But I suspect that they also were just really into cool tech uh, because what they did is they basically got a hopper, <laughs> filled it up with volcanic material, heated it up to 130 degrees, and then tipped it out. <laughs> and that basically, would be yeah. Fun. <laughs> and watch what happened. So down a, down a slope. And then they, you know, fast speed, high speed camera filmed the whole thing so they could actually track parts of it, if you like, and look at it in a lot of detail, and then they ran it through models, etc. And what they found, it's extremely interesting, what they found is that within that pyrocastic flow, there is not just a bunch of stuff flowing, there's layers of things. Mm. So in particular, near the bottom of it, there is a yep. very a dilute layer, if you like, which moves quite slow, but above that is a comparatively dense layer, which is moving very quickly. This, of course, produces a lower pressure, pressure differential, so there's lower mm. pressure down near the ground, which means that within that flow, the air tends to move downwards, mm. which creates a layer. So now you've got this nice, soft, smooth air-on-air air layer, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So zero zero friction. Incredibly yeah. quick, yeah. because it's incredibly... And not just... Yes, they're incredibly quick, but also incredibly unlikely to be impacted by the nature of the ground it's flowing over. Yep. That's really yep. what they're looking at. So it, it, it's going downhill, 
but it's going downhill with with a motion that is much closer to yeah. water. It's where, like a slide. Where did they choose to let this thing go? I have to ask. Uh, um, did they check what was at the bottom? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I want to know. I, I I can only assume. I, there is actually a video online. Um, it wasn't clear where the end of the ramp was. <laughs> so either they either they had no idea and they didn't want to show you because because <laughs> it was a sheep yeah, there, or, or presumably, um, or they knew exactly where it was and they don't want you to know. So I, I just straight know. into the ocean. I was just picturing but, all the undergrads at the bottom who were tasked with you know recording what happens at the yeah, bottom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Please sign this waiver form. Yeah. <laughs> Your assignment's I don't know. due on Friday if you survive that long. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> It's very cool stuff, though, because those yeah. flows are, like, extraordinarily damaging. Yeah. yeah. And and as you say, they're very fast. So it's mm. not like, you know, the whole lava flow scenario, ash cloud scenario is relatively slow moving. Yes. Mm. But the pyroclastic flows are, like, ridiculously yeah. fast. You see what they do in the forest with all the pine yeah. trees just laid over like laid matchsticks. Over. Yeah. 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 It's quite remarkable because they carry all that force is not being yep. used up by hitting the ground. It's basically no. still carried within the, uh, the matter. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Dr. Jen? Okay, question for you. What do uh, Plato, Charles Darwin, Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Jimi Hendrix, Barack Obama, Picasso and Ned Flanders have in common? 99.6% uh, of their DNA. <laughs> Something okay? else. Oh, <laughs> I don't know, Ned Flanders is a cartoon they've all, character. They've all been on The Simpsons at one point in time? They probably have, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. I like that. I don't know, but um, you're probably right. We, we know all their names. Yes. Mm. I give up. They're all left-handers. Oh, right. Oh, of course, the leftorium. Exactly, yes. the, the uh, southpaws. So, you know, left-handers have a very particular kind of romantic uh, view. You know, people take a very particular view of left-handers. Left-handers are considered to be more intelligent and more creative and better at divergent You're not going to destroy this for me, are you? Well, no, but oh, I yeah. want to point out that... Are you a left-hander? No. Oh, right. He wants to be, though. He's been trying <laughs> to throw yeah, balls no idea. left for years. would explain my bad handwriting. But um, one of the most famous <laughs> left-handers of all time was Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, right. And, you know, a lot of left-handers took great kind of comfort and inspiration from the fact that this mm. absolute genius, Leonardo mm. da Vinci, was a left-hander. Um, and he was also very famous for his mirror writing because, of course, one of the problems with being a left-hander is you don't want to smudge what you've just written. Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, he taught himself to write in mirror writing where he wrote with his left hand, but he actually wrote in the opposite direction right, yeah. so that he wasn't at risk of smudging yeah. his work. Um, but this new study has just come out. So the Uffizi Gallery in Florence Lovely has just world, done this yep. really detailed study of his first ever known drawing. If you're in the know, it's known as Landscape 8P. Otherwise, it's just, you know, this landscape of a river to all of us who don't know anything about art history. Yeah. But he did it when he, he drew it when he was 21. So it was from 1473. Wow. And the important finding from this study was that they did a very detailed analysis of two different inscriptions, one on the front and one on the back. Um, and you can analyse the slant of the writing. And it turns out it's a quite a reasonable science. It's not quite as, um, you know, wishy-washy mm -hmm. as it sounds. And they've shown very clearly that one of the inscriptions was written with his right hand and one of the was written with his left hand. Oh, wow. So they've come out and declared that they think he was definitely ambidextrous. Mm. He's such an overachiever, that man. Yeah. Well, the idea yeah. is that, you know, to, to give bring comfort to all of the left-handers who are listening and now, you know, feeling distressed, they, yeah. they reckon he was naturally a left-hander, but, of course, he was trained at a very early both? age yeah. that he be. had to be able to write with mm. his right hand, and he became <coughs> very proficient at writing with mm. his right hand as well. Um, but, yeah, so let's add to his incredible list of talents. It appears that he was very proficient. I wonder, I wonder, if, he's one of those, I wonder if he was one of those people that could to do the writing thing at the same time. Probably, I reckon. Because, mm. you, you know, I'm thinking artwork. If you're, you know... Um, yeah, half the time. It's just really <laughs> a 
efficient. Yeah. We're just yeah. doing stuff, you know. We're knocking off twice yeah. as much. Tree over here. You know, river over here. You reckon? Well, hey, I'd, if I could draw it all, I'd be happy with one if, hand. If but anyone yes. could do it, he probably Yeah, would. well, that's yeah. the thing, yeah. But um, the 2nd of, <clears throat> of May is the 500th anniversary of his death. Oh, wow. wow. So pretty amazing, 500 years. Yeah, I'm glad you're keeping tabs on these dates. Very, very important. I have trouble remembering... Chris's birthday. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I, you have I've no noticed. idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to uh, say you have no idea what today is, and I'll say you mean nothing. Well, it actually says it here on the computer screen for me, so it's not so bad. <laughs> Perfect. Now, uh, have you people heard of Katie Bowman? Dr. Katie Bowman? Yes. Yep. Professor Katie Bowman? Yes. I have. Uh, soon to be associate professor. <laughs> that's that's better, better. Yes. No, she's that so, girl. She's remember. that girl. <laughs> so, um, folks, if you haven't heard of this uh, amazing uh, young woman, she is the. Uh, researcher who wrote some of the algorithms to uh, deal with the black hole data that was coming in from four different locations so so you know there was this image that came out this week first time ever of a black hole m87 which is in a nearby galaxy and it was basically um processed from four, data from four different sites all by this one algorithm the majority of which was written by this young researcher katie bowman and there's this great picture of her online if you want to google her when the image first comes up and she just has this look of glee on her face it's fantastic um, but it, it, it's funny because it's rare that a single person in these large, sort of very large sort of collaborations ends up being the face of, of mm. things. So it's yes. kind of nice to see this. But it was one of the things I found fascinating was um, the just the amount of data involved here. So, you know, we, we often hear this term big data and people are storing this big data and so forth. But this is really big data. Like this is actually big data, not the sort of stuff you hear people from health and that getting excited about. This data was so intensive in terms of its size that you couldn't transmit it. They actually had to put a whole lot of hard drives on a plane mm. and move them around because it would have taken so long to transmit. It was just like, no, we're not going to do that. Let's just shovel these hard drives on a plane and fly them to the location where the, the data analysis would be done. So um, pretty impressive stuff. But uh, the reason they did it with four, these four different locations was to make sure that the image looked the same in every case. Mm. So it was that confirmation scenario to make sure that what they were looking at in terms of a black hole was the same in every case. And the, the details of that are sort of a subtle bit important. So if you look at the image, uh, the beautiful image that you see of that, it's brighter down the bottom mm. than it is up the top. Mm. And that was true in all cases of the data. So it wasn't just, oh, there's a donut. We all got a donut. It was yeah, like, no, no, yeah. we, got, we all got this donut, but you know, it was all brighter down one edge of the donut rather than the other. So good confirmation between the four groups, but uh, a spectacular we, piece of data. We don't know why that is, do we, by the way? The asymmetrical well, no, no, no. I mean, it could be, you know, there's a whole range of things there, but it could be what's between us and, and the object mm-hmm. at that particular point, you know, more dust mm-hmm. in this region of space than another. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really hard thing to take an image of. So mm-hmm. the fact that they could see it at all is really quite spectacular. And, you know, the, the full, we all seen this little donut picture, but the full image of that part of space, which you can get to, I think, via the nasa.gov website, is really worth having a look at because it's quite a beautiful x-ray image Mm -hmm. it's quite beautiful and and you see in this one point of the image which they zoom into this intense black spot it's like a hole Uh, (laughs) who'd have thought of that oh my god let's call it a black hole let's call it a black hole Um, but uh, but yeah anyway uh, look up Katie Bowman folks it's good to have a look at her pictures and there's a TED talk which I haven't watched yet but uh, and to Katie's credit she came out very quickly and said I'm one of so many she has contributed Mm, it's just that there happened to be this great photo of me that made a good story a little bit of misreporting going on there was a lot of misreporting going (laughs) on but to her credit she came out and corrected it yeah yeah 
Yeah, that's okay to have a few heroes in uh, science every now and then. Totally. And particularly yeah. if it's a young female hero, I'm not Absolutely. complaining. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Should be more of it. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be back in a moment talking to an author from Adelaide, assuming I can dial the phone, which uh, on a Sunday morning, <laughs> as everyone knows, is about a 50-50 bet. We'll be back in a minute. Three. Triple. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3 Blow. And guess what? I couldn't use the phone after all. So. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, we had a real-life guest waiting in the green room uh, who now didn't have to wait as long, which is great. Professor Amanda Ellis is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Amanda, welcome to Triple R. Great. Thanks for having me. It's fabulous to have you in here. Now, um, Dr Ray actually put this on to you because you've won an interesting award that the University of Melbourne has offered. Uh, um, not the University of Melbourne. Oh, where did it come from? Uh, it comes from the Royal Australian Chemical School. Oh, Institute. right. So it's even yeah. bigger. Yeah, it's yeah, even it's better. It's even bigger. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, <laughs> I'm more excited good now. Good choice. Now, the, now it's, uh, it's funny because it's the, it's the RACI Margaret Shield Award, who used to be the provost at Melbourne Uni, which made me think uh, maybe yeah, yeah. she's moved on. Um, Leadership Award. Now, tell us a bit about what this award is for. Um, well, it's just for um, uh, helping lead young women um, to more successful careers and, um, and sort of increasing the amount of uh, young women into STEM and, and, oh, yeah. and high schools and things like that. So it's, it's really about encouraging uh, leadership uh, all the way through, right the way through from high school, right the way through into, you know, major academic positions. Yeah. 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 So have you been doing anything in particular or has it just been sort of core to your overall career that you've been doing this? Oh, no, I mean, I've been actively going out and, and starting up... Um, uh, you know, communities within the universities. So before Melbourne, I was at uh, Flinders University yep. in South Australia. So I was there for ten years, um, and we did a whole lot of initiatives. We used to put imagery up in this in in the centre of of. Um, of Adelaide, mm -hmm. we pitched them up onto buildings and things like that of young mm. progressive scientists and things that were coming out. And so, no, you, you've been fairly active. Yeah. Oh, that, that sounds yeah. fantastic. Now, um, what do you do? You have to do anything as a result of the award? You know, often they 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 sort of <laughs> they get people with these awards to go out and do more of what sounds like you're already doing. Is there are there particular requirements? Um, well, there's just a requirement to sort of present at one of the major RACI conferences. But I've mm. been doing a little bit more than that so I'm I'm next week I'm going up to speak to young um, chemists at University of Sydney yep. and then you know University of UNSW the next day I'm hoping to get to Tasmania I'm going to Queensland oh, wow. back yeah. to Adelaide so yeah I mean it's 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 really about trying to sort of there's, in, in all honesty, there's not a lot of um, female chemists that are professors. Yeah. Um, so we're very few and far between. I was the first one uh, at Flinders University. Um, so it's really to show that there's some role models out there. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully I'm a decent one. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want the right yeah. ones, right? So. Yeah. Well, you're, self, you're self-reflective about it, which is probably a start. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the sort of what sort of advice do you give young women coming through? Because you know, it's as you say, there's not a lot of female professors in chemistry or chemical engineering. I mean, what, what sort of advice do you give them to to navigate that difficult space? Well, I think it's it, it's 
It's really making, don't seem to worry too much about the linear progression that's really important. Just do whatever it is that you want to do. If you want to stop and have children, if you want to go and t change your career and try and come back, yes, it's very difficult, but you've just got to believe in yourself, make connections, make networks, keep, you know, keep in contact with people, and they will also be able to help you. And this is where... You know, having women don't have those strong networks as, as much as men do in, in science and, and engineering and, and mm. mathematics. And so trying to build those connections for women is really important. Mm. How are we faring here in Australia relative to, you know, the US, UK, parts of Europe in this area? Uh, not very well. Mm. Um, I think it's just it's sort of a worldwide issue and in some countries it's worse than others. I mean the Asian countries have uh, are particularly difficult for for women mm. um, uh, but I think we, we're a bit more mindful of it and I think women have to step up and also I think men uh, in senior positions have to step up and they are slowly doing that so that's encouraging. Mm. Now let's talk a bit about your work because you, um, you play around with all sorts of DNA and, and so forth. I mean we often hear about DNA all the time from the biologists but um, you know, the, the, the medical people but a chemical engineer how are you using DNA? What are you doing? Well, I mean, I'm a secret spy chemical engineer because I'm actually a tr applied chemist by training and so I've moved into chemical engineering in the last couple of years mm. and this is to upscale things. So in, as chemists, we look at things in, in, a, in, a, in a beaker or yep. in a test tube and things and so engineers or chemical engineers take that and then make it bigger. So I started off with the DNA and looking at, at how DNA undergoes all of its secret binding and, and how you can have mismatches in that binding that create these things called secondary structures which have really unique properties mm -hmm. um, and then so I've been using that um, in my research at Melbourne in chemical engineering. And, and what sort of things can we actually do with DNA these days? I mean I remember years ago reading about you know data storage mm -hmm. and so forth mm -hmm. and, but, but but in reality, I think the number of actual applications that have come out have been, you know, well, I'm not sure I could name one, but, uh, uh, you know, there are things where we can see those applications now or are we still a fair way off? I think we're still a fair way off. I mean, we don't even understand how our own our own DNA and our own bodies work so mm. this is you know DNA that we've synthesized external to the body and we're asking it to do particular things like do computations for us or yep. um, to do diagnostic testing um, so uh, we're, we're making headway um, but certainly it's becoming it, it's not you know there's n there's no device out there that's that's ready and waiting to go i mean the best thing i suppose is is gene therapy yep. where we're we're manufacturing and synthesizing different genes external to our environment and and um and using those to fight against diseases. Yeah, presumably with some of the new technologies you know crispr cas9 and so forth the the capability to actually you know get DNA to do things we wanted to do in the non-biological sense, but you know, like in a sort of a chemical sense, like yeah. if we wanted to do certain processing. That are people looking into that? Are you looking into that? The 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 sort of way in which we manufacture DNA to do jobs for us. Um, well, that's, that, I guess that's what my research is. Now, first of all, I just want to make it, this is not scary. Right? I mean, mm, to, yeah, me, yeah, to, no. to me, DNA is just chemistry. It's yeah. just molecules mm. that interact mm. with each other. Just a polymer, right? And it, it is, exactly. Yeah. It's just a polymer, and if you add in different types of cations, then you can get different types of structures, and they can have different types of, of um outcomes but um, so for me what we're looking at a lot at the moment is trying to synthesize monomers of uh, 
So if you make a polymer, you can make it out of styrene and you make polystyrene. So the styrene's the monomer. And so what we want to do is create a monomer that has this the nucleotide, which is the functionality of DNA, and polymerize those up so that we end up with this synthetic backbone of polymer, but we also have a chain of, of, of DNA with, uh, associated with that polymer. Mm. And so then we can make vast um, sequences of, different, of different DNA, and again, that can be used for gene therapy, or um, we've been trying to make secondary structures where we can use them as an antimicrobial, for example. So. Mm. And in terms of how much is the, is the focus on the physical capabilities of the, you know, f- the, the sorts of things where you can make certain shapes and so mm. forth versus the chemical capabilities of, of DNA? Because, you know, there, there seems to have been a lot of demonstrations of physical things that are quite amazing that you can do with DNA, but there hasn't been as much in terms of the chemistry of, that I've seen anyway around the chemical possibilities, although the, the biologists, you know, are totally focused on that. Yeah, I mean, I guess from a chemical point of view, you can use, um, I don't want to get too technical, but you can use a thing called strand displacement, where um, if you're trying to analyse for a particular target of DNA, you can uh, exchange that. Mm-hmm. On a on a on a on another DNA by using the the intrinsic Watson Crick binding, so that's the chemical side of things. Yep. So you can use that Watson Crick binding to be very specific for specific targets that you're looking for. So mm-hmm. that's the chemical side yeah. of things. Um, in terms of structurally, a lot of research is made. You know, like you can make little boxes out of DNA, and then you can fill a drug inside them, and then potentially they can be used for drug delivery. That's mm-hmm. that's quite far away yeah. because. The problem is, is the human body likes to dissemble DNA. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it likes to eat it yeah. and, and then recreate it. But the work that we've been doing, where we've been using, it's a particular sequence of DNA which has a lot of guanine-rich regions um, that can be folded in the presence of a cation like potassium or, or, or something like that. And um, if you try and get that into sort of a bacterial or into a biofilm of a bacteria, they won't, they can't eat it because it's too hard. It forms mm. this secondary structure that it can't chop up. Yeah. So, um, and these, these things are called G quadruplexes, and we have them all over our own DNA. And mm. that stops, um, for example, it's, I don't know if you know much about telomerase, but that's at the end of our DNA and mm. sort of is results from our longevity or, or lack well, thereof. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, G quadruplexes play a very strong role in that and stop the um, stop the DNA from unfolding at the, at the ends of our... Yeah, sort of the end caps. At the end yeah, caps. Yeah. And, and, and presumably, like, when you do that, if you get that right and you functionalise it in the right way, as you were saying, you can mm. make it possible to deliver drugs to the location you want them to in the body as opposed mm. to... Yeah, there's always that, that issue of us taking such high doses mm. to get a small amount to one part of the body, you know, when the whole body gets it. So presumably that's the, that's the track some of that works on, is to be able to do more targeted release. Absolutely. I mean, target release is the, uh, one of the biggest problems with any drug delivery system at the moment is only 2% ends up anywhere. Yeah. The rest is all goes to your liver and your, ki- your, your kidneys are excreted. So the targeting of it is really important. Yeah, so. and you absolutely do not want it going to your kidneys. Like, well, not, 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 not that much. Well, because <laughs> the problem is is that most people that need it are already sick yeah. and so mm. already have damaged organs. Yeah. And so you're just damaging mm. it further. Yeah. So. 
Now, tell us just in terms of um, your lab, what am I going to see if I go in there? Is it a whole lot of PCR machines, those polymerized <laughs> chain reaction machines, or is it is it just beakers and does it look like a normal chemistry lab? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I've got fume cupboards. I've got one PCR machine, real-time uh, PCR. It. I need to be one there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, gel docs and things like that. Um, but it is, you know, this is one aspect of what I do. I do a lot of other different types of sciences, mm. so um, or engineering's. Um, so, you know, one part of my lab is, is dedicated to the DNA and DNA yeah. structuring. So mm. that just looks like a normal lab. Sounds good. <laughs> Amanda, look, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Congratulations on getting the award. I Thank think you. it's great. And it's, it's really impressive that you're, you're going so far out around the country to sort of promote um, the, the, you know, the good work you're doing and, and women in research and trying to get more and more support for that. So, well done. Uh, thanks for chatting to us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank Professor you. Amanda Ellis is the Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. Three. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R, and guess what? I worked out how to use the phone. Hey. <laughs> well done, Shane. So I, I think. Uh, well, hang on. Don't jump the gun. <laughs> but hopefully, Being we have optimistic. we have Alice Gorman on the phone from Adelaide. Alice, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you very well. Excellent. I have trouble with the phone sometimes, so every now and then I, you know, tend to mess this up. But uh, now you're a space archaeologist. That seems like a contradiction in terms. Tell us about that. Yeah, it does. When I say this to people, they're generally like, hang on, but archaeology is about old stuff and space is about right now and the future. How does that work? Mm. But if you think of archaeology not just as the study of old things, but as a, a set of methods and techniques that focuses on material things and human interactions with material things, then the time period doesn't really matter. You can do archaeology on pretty much anything, and that's kind of what I do. I um, started to look at space material, like rocket launch sites and orbital debris in Earth orbit and planetary landing sites, um, about, I don't know, maybe it was about 15 years ago now, and it was just a matter of applying those archaeological theories and techniques to this material stuff that humans have been engaged with for, like, um, 60 years now. Mm. So when, when you look at something like the Apollo landing sites, which we've now had, you know, more recent imagery of and so forth, I mean, how do you view those? Because presumably they're, they're, they're locations that we'd want to apply some sort of archaeological protection to. Yeah, this is absolutely right. There's obviously a big focus on Apollo 11 this year because it's the 50th yeah. anniversary of that landing. When I look at that place, so I see there's the landing module, the, the craft that they descended on that's, that kind of centers the site. And then you have scattered around it the material evidence, the physical evidence of all of the things that they did in that place. They were on the surface for 22 hours and they, they set up cameras and they took samples of the lunar regolith, the, the soil, the dust that's on the surface. They took samples of rocks. They measured light. They set up all these different experiments. And of course, they walked all over that dust. Their little ridged moon boots sank into the dust and created all these footprints. So for me, I see uh, uh, an area in which we can see the physical evidence of how these human bodies 
um, bundled up in these very bulky spacesuits, adapted to a different kind of gravity, and carried out uh, a, a series of scientific activities, which were the first of their kind. So it's like a it's like a, a, a code that has information that you can read if you study the relationships between the different traces. Hmm. G'day, Alice. It's Chris KP here. Um, I'm interested okay. in you know, in a balance, um, I suppose, in that one of the most common places that we, we see human artefacts in, in space is uh, orbiting space junk. And most of the commentary mm. on that is that it's a problem and needs to be removed or dealt with in some way or at the very least tracked. Um, how do you reconcile that sort of somewhat destructive approach to, to the interest in either maintaining it or learning from it? It's not as hard as it sounds. Like, you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of stuff out there, and it is a serious problem and likely to become more of a problem as we go into the future. Like, there are plans. Elon Musk wants to launch 12,000 small satellites hmm. in the next seven years. There's a few other companies wanting to do that. And, of course, the recent Indian anti-satellite test where they blew up one of their own satellites and created junk that's now possibly a risk to the International hmm. Space station like i don't want to underestimate that this is really serious stuff but it's it's a little bit like what we do on earth in development situations like if a, a road or a um a bridge or a coal mine is being built there's um a, a sort of economic interest i guess in providing jobs to a community and a, a, a resource that the australian economy will benefit from all that kind of stuff but in the process uh these constructions can destroy or have an impact on heritage places both aboriginal and european so you kind of have to balance these mm. things you have to try and get a good outcome for everyone and my argument about the space junk is that i guess first junk's a pretty negative word like we think of junk <laughs> stuff that's useless and abandoned but i prefer to think of perhaps the potential. So in all of this stuff up there, there's materials that could be recycled or salvaged for future lunar industry or even habitation. There's metals that could be used for spacecraft fuel. So not so much there. space junk is space garage sale. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and then there's the, the thing that particularly interests me. It's the fact that some of these objects that are no longer functioning have incredible stories and they're connected to communities on Earth and there are actually people who care about them. So one of my favourite, favourite examples is the Australis Oscar 5 satellite which was built by a group of students and their colleagues from Melbourne University in the 1960s and it was very, very nearly Australia's first launched satellite, just an amateur satellite. This mm. is what we know we'd, today we'd call it community science or citizen science and it's still up there it's the oldest australian object in orbit and technically it is junk but it's also australian heritage yeah. so my argument would be uh until the point comes where that satellite is an actual demonstrable risk to some other functioning space asset then we don't do anything we don't just say right let's set this out of the sky it's rubbish we leave it in the place where it has significance for us, the oldest Australian object in orbit. And when the time comes, it is proving to be some high-risk object, then we assess the situation. So that's 
kind of the process for a lot of this stuff that we're calling junk. It's significant to someone. And it's like, if we get rid of all of this stuff, what's going to tell the story of the space age up in orbit? Yeah, g'day Alice, it's uh, Ewan here. Um, I guess I'm following on from uh, some of what you've been discussing. I'm interested in what we're learning about, I guess, the human relationship with space in terms of exploring new areas and, you know, analogous situation to, to Earth. So, you know, we have people go into new areas, let's say, um, you know, Mount Everest, and they leave all this junk behind. Are humans behaving any differently in space? And you talk about whether this is junk or not, but I mean, are we actually behaving any differently in space to how we behave on Earth? And, 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 and you know, are people looking at that, so those contrasts and, and what that might mean in terms of our behaviour and so forth? Yeah, I think um, that's an interesting one. You could argue, I think, that, uh, in fact, our behaviour in space is worse than our behaviour on Earth now because uh, space was very heavily involved in the kind of growth of environmental consciousness in uh, the 60s and 70s and movements around the world sort of sprang up to, to promote the idea that we should not rubbish the earth and pollute nature. Uh, but interestingly, uh, well, I, sh- I suppose I should add it was photographs uh, like the whole earth image mm. and Earthrise that kind of gave people a new vision of the Earth as this whole system. So things have changed on Earth. Like People are very, very conscious of this now. But in space, not so much. So there's a, a statistic I find really, really horrifying. There's uh, guidelines that have been set up by the United Nations and by NASA and a few other organizations on how you design your space mission to minimize the amount of new junk that it will create. And someone did a calculation and worked out that 60% of all missions launched do not follow the guidelines to minimise the creation of new debris, which is pretty horrifying, I think. Mm. It it means there's there's just more and more junk going up every day. Yeah, there is. Um, The the big concern is this thing called um, Kessler syndrome. So stuff does get dragged back into the atmosphere if it's at a low enough orbit, but that's kind of happening at a slower rate than new fragments are created and new stuff put up into orbit. And the worst-case scenario is, is the Kessler syndrome, and this is when collisions between bits of debris in Earth's orbit become self-sustaining. So Mm. if you stopped putting anything else new in there, the amount of stuff would just keep colliding with each other, making new fragments which which collide, and it would become basically an unsafe environment. You've probably all seen the film WALL-E about the little robot. One of my all-time favourites. But there's a wonderful scene, or frightening scene in the beginning, where he's hanging onto the rocket that leaving us and it punches through mm. the, mm. the space junk yeah. yeah and and you see Sputnik 1 there which and it isn't I just have to point out <laughs> but visually it's really interesting yeah and it's just a you know it's just a few seconds in the film but that is what the Kessler syndrome would be like yeah yeah look it's um there's there's so much stuff and as you say some of it is really interesting but some of it is definitely not now before we let you go Alistair uh, you've got a new book that's uh, I think just been released in the last couple of weeks tell us about that uh, yes so my book is called Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe the Archaeology of the Future and it's a lot of stories about objects and places connected to space 
that I think are really, really interesting, but it's also about connecting people to space. It's about showing that space isn't just these technologies being carried out by other nations or by NASA that are all out there. Mm. This is actually stuff entwined with our lives, not just because we're all using smartphones, but in, entwined with our lives because we look up at the stars, we go and visit a playground where there's a toy rocket that the kids all love. Um, about those sort of more everyday things, I guess. So, um, it, yeah, just released in the last couple of weeks and it's um, it's... A popular science book so um i'd like to think it's easy to read and i would love it if people read it sounds good alice thanks so much for uh, chatting to us today good luck with the book i hope it's a big success for you and um it's nice to hear someone talking about all the stuff up in space that's uh yeah especially from the as you say the archaeological point of view i think that especially the stuff around the apollo missions and that is fascinating and for those of us who read all those old books about the old days of space exploration um it's mm -hmm. good to hear someone else is interested in it so thanks so much for chatting to us Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Alice Gorman there from Adelaide and her new book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, which uh, you can get a hold of. It's uh, it's available now. So now we're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements, folks, and then we'll be back with a little bit more news before the end of the show. Three. Triple. No, we're back. Jeez, almost forgot we were still broadcasting. <laughs> Chris KP's going nuts here in the studio, <laughs> folks, as he often does. He always uh, does. Because he's going to get excited about this next story because it, it, it gives him hope. Okay. <laughs> uh, there is a group of researchers in China who have, you know, they're not exactly following the international rules around the use of uh, CRISPR and gene editing, hmm. and they have been playing around with, um, shall we say, uh, have you seen the film Planet of the Apes? <laughs> <laughs> the original, yes. <laughs> or the remake. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's more uh, attuned to uh, the use of these techniques. But basically what they've been doing is they've been taking um, some rhesus monkeys. They took, I think, 11 of them. And uh, only five survived, unfortunately. But what they did was they gave them some gene modifications before they were born. And these gene modifications are on a particular gene that us humans have that controls the size of our brains. So if you don't have this particular gene working properly, it's called MCPH1, then odds are you'll have a lower-sized brain. And what they did was they played around with this gene in these rhesus monkeys. Now, the interesting outcome of this was not that the monkeys got bigger brains. They didn't, actually. But they did, um, shall we say, fared a lot better on all the memory and cognitive tests that they were given. So, hence my comment about the film <laughs> Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and now, this is, this is interesting because uh, this particular type of research has been essentially um, given the no-go in all mm. Western countries. Yeah. Um, and we've seen this sort of thing happening in China recently. And to be fair, um, this is a really cheap way of doing it. We've talked about this before. Mm. You know, CRISPR's relatively simple. It's very, very cheap. And you can use it. So, they're doing this sort of research on, on monkeys. And it's... Uh, there's hope for Chris K. <laughs> well, Man, I was so going to so say that. So their, yeah. their, their brains didn't get bigger, right? Their brains didn't. So this Which is was one the of the aim. It's one of the interesting things about these gene modifications. So 
That was the aim, but that didn't happen. But so, how do they explain the improved memory and cognition? I'm, I'm guessing neurons, right? Because there's yes. a lot of research that suggests now that it's not just the size of your brain that matters, it's but what it's you how many neurons it? are packed in there. Yeah, yeah. And so also something's learning. changed. Yeah. yeah, well, learning, of course, as well. So mm. something's definitely changed in the monkeys because their their memory tests and processing abilities were were determined to be far greater than uh, normal rhesus monkeys. Yeah. Mm. So now they, they they weren't they weren't flying planes. You know, let's be clear here, um, or or taking over the globe like in the movie but uh, but this is a modification to another species was it um was it published in a reputable journal it was published in uh let me see national science review okay um and it was an interesting comment actually which i thought was funny but there's a american researcher from north carolina university who was involved and he's been questioned quite you know significantly as you might imagine from the western press and he said well actually all i did was the mri imaging Hmm. It's like, dude, you're involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you're in a couple of. I just opened the yeah. doors. I just drove them there. Well, um, he shouldn't no, have been no. on the that's, paper then. But that's a you're great involved. question, Chris, because most journals or a lot of journals mm. won't publish work that doesn't meet ethical guidelines. Exactly. Which yeah, meant, then means a whole bunch of work is stuck in journals that may have questionable, you yep. know, ethics, or, shall yeah, we yeah, say? Yeah. yeah. So. So it's an interesting, mm. it's an interesting one, and, and not to be honest, I mean, everyone's all shocked and so like, Really, you're really surprised that this this mm. is going to happen. There's yeah. going to be a lot more of it, and it's going to continue. And and there are these techniques. I mean, it was similar with a lot of the nuclear research in the 60s and 70s. You know, this stuff is going to happen by nations that don't follow the same ethical regulations necessarily as other nations around the world. Yeah. And this stuff is readily available. It's yeah. doable, and mm. these researchers are doing it. And next thing you know, we'll be doing head transplants. There, there is a guy working on that, but I don't think sure. There is. There is. We've talked about that before. <laughs> he's there's probably the, many. Some we don't know about. Yeah, he's tried it on a few dogs, but apparently yeah. no, no, no joy. So well, it's a giveaway when you're walking out the street. Speaking about dogs, and I'll his head. You know, <laughs> speaking about dogs, I'll go to a super quick story. Yeah, yeah, go for so it. So this is about cats. So and I'll just, I'll just. False advertising. I'll just premise wait. this by saying dogs are way cooler than cats. Oh, okay. But. Yeah. Some research has just come out to suggest that cats can actually recognise their names. I so, saw that. So yeah. most people, you know, know dogs and you call their name, the dog comes and blah, 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 blah. But we, for a long time, people probably thought cats can't really do that. So they're um, just rude? <laughs> yeah. They're definitely rude. I mean, we know cats are evil, right? <laughs> Pretty correct. much. Yeah. As a dog owner, I say oh, that. Yeah, yeah so, they're evil. But... So that what they did was this study in Japan. They actually basically um, pronounced the whole range of words uh, with a similar intonation, similar length uh, in Japanese, done by Japanese researchers, and and then occasionally they'd actually drop in the name of the cat, and they observed the cat's behaviour. And so mm-hmm. when they were saying just a random sort of noun, not very much response. A cat might kind of look at them a little bit, but when they said their name, they'd pick up pick up their ears. Someone would actually get up, stand up, and walk towards that sound. Hmm. Uh, and they did this over and over and over again with many cats, and so the implication was that they recognised their name. Now, we don't know whether they actually recognised their name per se or whether mm. they've associated their name with, I'm going to get a treat, something, something nice is going to happen, um, and that was just single cats. But the other thing they also showed was that even cats uh, in a group, so imagine a cafe and there's a whole bunch of cats uh, and they said names again. They had a bit more trouble because they didn't really know whether it was their name or the other cat mm. next to them, but they could still discern to some degree um, names versus some other word that mm. was just random. Mm. So it does suggest that there's a bit more going on there with cats. And they're just rude. They're yeah. just rude. They're, they're definitely rude. We know yeah. that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been demonstrated. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. So dogs, dogs are still cooler, but we'll give cats a little bit more credit. So I think, I think the, the moral of that story is if you say your cat's name and they don't respond, you know they're being rude, so don't feed them for a day. Yeah. Is that, is that the... <laughs> that might breach some sort of guidelines in terms of animal welfare. Yeah. But Harsh. Yeah. 
Uh, everyone can survive for a day. Dr. Jen, <laughs> did you want to mention something before the end of the show? Yeah, I just want to quickly revisit a study we've talked about a few times mm. before, and that is trying to answer this question of what space travel does to the human body. You know, oh, what happens with yes. microgravity and radiation yes, and yes. confinement and all in the context of, you know, if we want to try and hang out in Mars, you know, it's a three-year-round trip. It's a long yeah. time. So, you know, we've known that, that there's a problem for bones and muscles and, and um, eyesight and all sorts of things go wrong when you hang out in space, but it's been really hard to do a good controlled mm. study. So mm. the NASA twins study had this awesome opportunity that identical twins, Scott and Mark Kelly, um, Scott spent a year in 2015 living on the International Space Station while his identical twin brother spent a year on Earth. So they did really intensive yeah. studies, six months beforehand, during the whole trip, and then I think, actually no, nine months beforehand and then six months when they got back. And the first study's just been published Was, was the brother week. on Earth, though, just sitting back playing games? Like this is totally how did they decide? That's <laughs> I don't know. You'd be spewing, yeah. right? What would like, you do? Oh, how come you got to go? But, and I'm just, but also, know. what does he get to do on Earth? Do you have to mimic yeah. his brother's behaviour? Yeah, that's just sitting around. Sit in the lounge, watch the telly? Well, I mean, they've been very clear. It wasn't the perfect study, you know, like a sample size of one set of twins. But one set of twins who are <laughs> co- genetic copies yeah. of each other yeah. is better yeah, yeah, yeah. than we've ever had before. Still good. Yeah. So, um, so finally, the first study's come out and it's full of information. Yeah, we could spend hours talking about all the things I don't really understand. There's proteomics, metabolomics, immunomics, epigenomics, integrative omics. What the Lots of omics. That's a lot of omics. But a few mm. really interesting studies. One was, we were talking before with the manager about telomeres, so the protective mm. caps on the end of mm. DNA. It turned out that Scott's telomeres actually lengthened during the mission, which oh, is wow. the opposite of what they expected. Wow. But then when he got home, um, he actually ended up with much shorter telomeres than he did have at the start of the project. So they oh, didn't they wow. didn't shorten. Wow. So shortening telomeres is so a sign like, of ageing. It's like putting him in the dryer. It didn't happen while he was there, but when it got back, he did. Oh, so that's wow. a bit of a concern. Yep, yep. They also found massive changes in gene expression but 90% of them went back to normal um, after you know mm. once he'd been mm. back on earth um, his body responded appropriately to the flu vaccine which is really good news because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what our immune system does um, they did find out though that he um, a whole series of cognitive tests that uh, he was reasonably okay when he was there but in the six months after he got back quite big changes in the speed and accuracy in some of his cognitive testing which is a concern because if you've just spent 18 months getting to Mars and you suddenly there, your, bra- your, your, your you know, thinking is a bit mushy yeah. where tiny, tiny mistakes can be catastrophic yeah, in yeah. space. That's a bad sign. As long, so as, as, long as you can farm potatoes, that's... <laughs> by- in your own extra yeah, that, yeah, I yeah. think it's okay, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think the overall message is there's heaps more to come out of the study, but it suggests overall, with a few provisos, that our bodies are pretty good at bouncing back from the pressures, which is really exciting. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, we do love high altitude training, don't we? That kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, we do it because we adapt quickly, right? Doesn't yeah. get much higher than off the planet. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, if you survive the radiation on the way there, I think yeah. uh, that that's part of the big problem. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to to, to hear about that. And the gut microbiome biome was another really big part of the study and as you could imagine given what he was eating when he was there yeah. his microbiome changed a lot but then it also bounced back once he was back ask on why they only for went for one set of twins because there the aren't any other find. identical twins who are trained astronauts yeah they're the only ones who have the expertise okay fair enough <laughs> <laughs> they should still try harder if they're genuinely serious about trying to do this like a sample size of one set yeah. of twins recruit some more twins i, feel sorry. Right. I, feel I mean sorry i'm sure nature your, and science will lap it up but i feel sorry for your students seriously nice try nasa 14 out of 20 so. <laughs> 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 all right folks we're gonna have to hand over to the team from either in a second dr ewan thank you very much thank you uh, and uh, dr jen pleasure
Chris KP, always a pleasure having you on the show. Likewise, of course. <laughs> so Eight man over here to my right. <laughs> oh, <no>. so <laughs> uh, thanks, um, people, for listening to Einstein and Go Go. Uh, we're gonna we've got a great interview for you next week in um, from the days when we interviewed Gene soon, and we're gonna play that one again because it is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. So we thought that'd be a bit of fun for the Easter weekend. Until next time, remember science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening. And coming up now is Eat It. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.